0: Hello everyone and welcome to our final sermon in our series on the book of Romans. My name is Dan Forrest and today we will be looking at Romans 14 to 16. At the start of the series I was not that excited to dig into this book but now that we're at the end I'm really glad that we did it. I hope that you've been blessed by the work Jonathan Chan and I have put into the series and I hope the Spirit has spoken to you through the book of Romans over the past few months. Well, to start our sermon today, we're going to watch a clip from the movie Anchorman. Uh, Ron Burgundy and the Channel 4 News team are going to get into a little encounter with Wes Mantooth and the Evening News team. Uh, Ron and his team, they're bemoaning the fact that a woman has been made a co-anchor with Ron and Wes is going to rub that in in this clip that you'll see here. Warning, if you have children watching this video, be aware that there is some questionable language and there's going to be some violence in this clip. Well, well, well. Ron Burgundy the Channel 4 News Team. Where's your mommy? I've had enough of you, Mantooth. This is gonna end right here, right now. Let's dance, dickweed. You wanna dance, Ronnie? I wanna polka. Come get a taste. Rick, where'd you get a hand grenade? I don't know. All right! Let's do this! Hey! Hey. If you're gonna have a fight, then don't forget Channel 2 News with me, lead anchor Frank Fitchard. You dirtbags have been in third place for five years. Yeah, we're about to be in dead place. Not so fast, you ingrates! Public news team is taking a break from its pledge drive to kick some ass. No commercials! No mercy! Beaches! Spanish language news is here! Tonight's top story. The sewers run red with Burgundy's blood. Yeah, yeah. Get up, get up, get up. Well, looks like we got ourselves a bilingual blood fest. Begin! Yeah. Boy, that escalated quickly. (laughs) All these different news channels have different ways of doing things and unfortunately they just can't get along. I love Ron's line at the end there, boy that escalated quickly. I've chosen that for the title of my sermon today because the same experience happened in the early church when Paul was around. And it also still happens today, unfortunately. The first major explosion of growth that happened in the early church was on the day of Pentecost. And in Acts 2, we read the group described like this. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had a need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This sounds just like an amazing, loving, united community. But then, just four chapters later, we have this. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So if you don't know, the Hellenistic Jews were Jewish Christians who spoke Greek, whereas the Hebraic Jews, they spoke Hebrew. And the early church had only been around for a short while, and already there's discrimination happening among them. The Hebrew-speaking Jewish Christians were overlooking the widows of the Greek-speaking Jewish Christians. And it's not like they were even a different race. They were all Jews. But because one group spoke Greek and embraced the Greek culture, the other group neglected them. And then we fast forward five more chapters. And this is what happens in Acts 11. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. The church has expanded now to include non-Jewish members. And this was affirmed by God in a vision to Peter and by giving the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles who had become Christians. And this should have been celebrated in the early church as it was a fulfillment of not only the prophecies of the Old Testament, but also the promises of Jesus. But instead, Peter is met with criticism, disdain, finger-pointing. Peter explained to them what had happened, and he convinced them and the other leaders that God has expanded the church to include non-Jews, the Gentiles, and the Jews, the non-Jews were welcomed, and they were celebrated, and the church grew even more. But with the inclusion of Gentiles came a series of challenges. Were they expected to observe all the Jewish laws, to stop eating pork and shrimp, to get circumcised, to observe Sabbath and the other Jewish holy days? The early church leaders, they held a council in Jerusalem to decide what was essential to everyone's faith and what was non-essential. Well, when I studied the book of Acts in Bible school and we came to this story, my teacher had us go through an exercise that I've used in other settings as well because I think it's a really eye-opening exercise. I've come up with 20 different beliefs and practices that different denominations hold as essential to faith. And I want you to pause this video... Go through this list of 20 items and decide what do you believe are essential beliefs and practices that every Christian must agree with in order to be considered a Christian. So pause the video now, really take some time, write down the numbers that you think are the most essential to our faith. Okay, are you back? Have you returned? So what we did in my class was we then argued about what we thought was essential to our faith, much like the Jerusalem council had to argue what they believed was essential to the faith. And in my class, we actually had a list of 30 items. So it was even more than this. And in a room of about 50 people, how many do you think we all agreed on? Well, at the end of it all, we could really only agree on five to six points here. And and I was in shock. At that time, I had circled more than half of the list, and I couldn't believe there were other Christians that didn't agree these were essential. Well, I've changed a lot since then, and with this list here, let's compare which ones you thought were essential and which ones I think are essential. Only three. Of all the 30 items on this list, I would say that maybe these three are essential for someone to be considered a Christian. Well, here's the full list again. You probably agreed with me that, you know, I left off polygamy being acceptable or Christ being physically present in communion. That's probably not essential things to everyone's faith. But you know, how could I leave out number four, that Jesus physically rose from the dead? Now, I'm not saying I don't believe that. I fully believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead. But I actually know some Christians who, who believe that Jesus' resurrection was a spiritual resurrection and not a physical one. And I don't agree with them, but they have some really good reasons. And I'm going to explain later why I think this probably doesn't need to be on the list. I'm going to explain it later in the sermon though, so don't worry. I should also say there are points on this list that I don't agree with at all. But that doesn't mean that, that those who do believe them aren't Christians. As you heard from my conversation with Jonathan a couple weeks ago, I don't believe that God has predestined some to salvation and passed over others based only on his will, but Jonathan believes that. And even though we disagree on this point, Jonathan is still my brother in Christ. I believe we're both saved, even though we disagree on this point. So you might have circled some of the items on this list because you firmly believe them, but just because you believe them it doesn't mean there are essential beliefs for all Christians. Because we are humans, we will always disagree on things. We're limited in our perspective and in our knowledge, and we're also full of pride. So we're going to disagree. So as individual Christians, as churches, as denominations, as global networks of Christians, we have to discern which beliefs and practices are essential to our faith and which ones are non-essential, which ones are are important for certain groups, but don't need to to be in place for every group. And that's what the, as I said earlier, that's what the early church had to do in the Council of Jerusalem. In that council, they discerned and agreed that most of the Jewish practices were not essential. Gentiles could eat pork. Gentiles didn't have to get circumcised. Gentiles didn't have to observe the Jewish holy days. And the only requirements that they gave them were, They weren't allowed to eat food sacrificed to idols or meat from strangled animals. They weren't allowed to drink blood and they had to abstain from sexual immorality. I got to admit, those are the requirements they picked to say to them. These are the ones you really should consider. I mean, sexual immorality, I think that's a great one. But the other two, I I don't know. I I would think they would put other stuff in there. But those are the ones that they picked. And the reason was for all of this. They didn't want to burden the Gentiles with non-essential practices. They didn't want to make it hard for them to grow in their faith. And some churches today would say that, oh, they're watering down the gospel, when really what they're doing is practicing grace and offering freedom for the Gentiles to grow in their faith on their own. The hope of this council was to stop any divisions that were growing between the Jewish and Gentile Christians. But Unfortunately, as we've learned from Romans, those divisions still persisted, and this is one of the main reasons that Paul is writing to the Roman church. And as we've been preaching over and over again these past few months, I like the way John Isaac summarizes in his commentary the primary argument of Romans, so here we go. Paul argues, chapters 1 to 11, that the gospel is God's power of salvation for all, both Jew and non-Jew and that God's righteousness is revealed in Jesus' faithfulness. Furthermore, it is Jesus' faithfulness that enables and gives shape to our faithfulness within God's newly reconfigured people. Paul is fighting for a unified church that is made up of a a diverse group of people with different opinions and practices who are not saved based on their works, but who are saved only by Jesus' faithfulness, which fuels our faithfulness in Christ. And so Paul appeals once again with the closing chapters of Romans for unity and grace and acceptance. And I'm going to read a big chunk of Romans 14 to 15 now, because I think we need to hear it all together before cutting it apart and dissecting it. So sit back and relax and let the word of God just soak over you. Romans 14 verse 1. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever reads meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does does so to the Lord and give thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the holy spirit because anyone who serves christ in this way is pleasing to god and receives human approval let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification do not destroy the work of god for the sake of food all food is clean but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble it is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else That will cause your brother or sister to fall so whatever you believe about these things keep between yourself and god blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves but whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not build himself up, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Well, what Paul is arguing for here has been written into a popular Christian saying as "...in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity." Paul understands that there are non-essentials in Christianity that we don't all have to agree on. And in this passage, these things are translated as disputable matters. Paul has never been to the Roman church, but he must have heard that some of the Gentiles Christians considered all food clean and had no prohibitions, and they considered all days as sacred and therefore didn't observe any of the Jewish holy days. While some of the Jewish Christians, however, they would only eat kosher meat, And in Rome, it was probably hard to find or hard to tell if the meat they were getting was kosher. So just to be safe, it was easier just to give up all meat and only eat vegetables. And those Jewish Christians also still observed the Jewish holy days. Now for Paul, these are disputable matters. It's up to the individual Christian to discern which is important for them. But the problem in the Roman church is explained in verse 3 here. The one who eats everything is treating the one who does not with contempt, and the one who does not eat everything is treating the one who does with judgment. This is not the unified and mutually encouraging community that Paul or God wants to see. And so Paul pleads with them not to quarrel over such issues, because God has accepted both of these groups, even though they practice different things. Now one of the odd choices of language that Paul uses here is he calls some weak in faith and others strong and it seems as though he's preferring one opinion over another and doesn't that show favoritism and just breed more quarreling? Well I think in our context today you know I wouldn't use that language it's problematic but from what I've gathered from different commentaries there's actually two two good reasons why Paul is labeling some weak and some strong. First it's fitting that Paul would refer would prefer the liberty of the non-Jewish Christians because that's the position that he supports the most even though he's a Jewish Christian it's not surprising that he thinks that they have the stronger faith because those who are weak in faith are living with a certain level of fear and they need to impose these restrictions to feel more secure in their faith whereas those who eat anything have no fear and thus have a stronger faith but once again that kind of language can lead to more divisions if you don't understand the second point which i think is paul is using these labels most likely because those are the labels that the roman christians are using for each other and this is something that paul often does in his letters when he's addressing quarrels he'll use the same language that the community is using itself but he often flips the language on its head and in this case the non-jewish christians are likely labeling the Jewish Christians as weak in faith, and Paul is saying, "Okay, so if they are weak in their faith, doesn't mean, doesn't that mean that you, who are strong in faith, should help them grow in their faith rather than making them shrink away with your contempt?" And in this case, weak and strong are not just adjectives for faith; it's also for their status in the church. The non-Jewish Christians were likely stronger in numbers and influence. And one of the core principles of following Jesus is giving up your strength and power, sacrificing yourself for the sake of the ones who don't have strength and power. So the strong are called to humble themselves so that they can raise the weak up. And we read this in Romans 15:1. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. So, this language of weak and strong is not meant to show favoritism and cause more quarrels. It's meant to encourage the non Jewish Christians to make more of an effort to welcome, accept, and include the Jewish Christians in the community. Well, unfortunately, the tragedy of the letter to the Romans is the Roman churches and all the other churches for the most part never did stop quarreling and especially these cultural differences and disputable matters they never really got fully resolved. By the end of the first century there were actually hardly any Jewish Christians anymore in the church anywhere. The church was predominantly Gentiles and it didn't help that some of the bishops after Paul's time were anti-semitic and pushed away the jewish christians even more boy that escalated quickly and as we know it doesn't stop escalating after that petty bickering in the church of rome has escalated to violence and even wars among christian brothers and sisters over the decades over the centuries i'm not even talking about the wars between christians and muslims I'm talking about the civil wars that have happened within the church. This picture here depicts the violence that broke out between the Catholics and the Protestants in the 15th century. And the things that they're fighting over are things that we might even call disputable matters, non-essentials. I'm part of the Mennonite denomination, which in the 15th century taught that infant baptism was meaningless and that believers' baptism was the most important, and so they got rebaptized as adults. And guess how the Catholic Church responded to that? Boy, that escalated quickly. (laughs) Is this acting in love? For the past 2,000 years, the Church has not followed very well the message of Paul to the Romans or the message of Jesus to his disciples. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Jesus said they will know you are Christians by your love. Paul said, bear with each other and forgive one another, and over all these virtues, put on love. The reason we are so bad at this as a church is because we can't agree on what is essential and what is non-essential, and we don't know how to act in love when what we think is essential is threatened by another group. Even when Paul says, what you eat is a disputable matter. You know, if you ask those Jewish Christians what they thought about kosher food... They would say, no, this is not a disputable matter. If we eat pork and shrimp, we will be sinning and we will be excluded from the kingdom of God. This is essential. And even though Paul tells them not to judge others, why would they stop? Because they think the others are sinning and leading others astray. So how do we move forward on this when things are still so unclear in our church even today? The church has fought for years on things like baptism, predestination versus free will speaking in tongues communion creation care abortion women in ministry same-sex attraction is there any hope for us well i think there is i think that god is faithful to his church and that uh you know jesus has built this uh, church upon his rock and and the gates of hell will not prevail against it that's what jesus said I think there are some things that we can do to help minimize the quarreling and help move in this life of charity and love, acceptance. I think the first thing that we need to do is narrow down our list of what is essential. In this passage, we're reminded that ultimately God is the judge of who is a Christian or who is not. So we shouldn't be so quick to judge people ourselves and determine whether they're in or out or what they are. If someone has a desire to follow Jesus, they are our brother and sister, regardless of whether they've got all their theology figured out, regardless of whether they've got their life and their practices all in order. If they have a desire to follow Jesus, they are our brothers or sisters. We're all growing. We're all figuring this out. And it's our job to encourage each other to grow in our faith not to condemn and cause others to shrink away by our judgments and contempt. You know, it's, it's okay to debate theology and to debate how we do things as a church, but it's not okay to fight each other. It's not okay to kill each other over these differences. Well, I think we need to look at Romans 14 verses 5 and 6 for a couple more pointers on how to move forward in unity. In Romans uh, 14 verse 5 it says, One person considers one day more sacred than another, another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. That last line there I think is really important. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. In order to be fully convinced, you need to really dig into an issue. Study both sides of the debate. Look for third perspectives that you've never even heard of before. Talk with other Christians discuss, pray together, read lots of scripture and commentaries and articles, live it out and see what happens. If you're going to take a really strong position on a belief or a practice, you need to be fully convinced in your mind. And too often we get into fights with other Christians and we haven't fully heard their side. We've made up our mind and we're not willing to listen. Or we have a strong emotional response that's just fueling us from within And that leads us to not take any time to study and look at the logic or the science of what we're talking about. And that's actually why I'm okay with some of my Christian friends thinking the resurrection was spiritual and not bodily. Because those friends of mine have spent a lot of time studying and discussing and praying over this topic. And I I don't agree with them. I don't think their logic totally makes sense. I don't Know how I don't agree with how they're using the scripture, but at the end of the day, I'm not the judge. I'm a finite human. God is the judge. God is the one who is going to uh deem them Christian or not. And what I see in them is a desire to follow Jesus. And they do what they do to the Lord. And that brings us to the third thing that we need to look at: Romans 14, verse 6. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. Repeatedly, we read the phrase, does so to the Lord. We need to check our motives for why we believe what we believe or practice what we practice. Are we truly holding on to this because it is to the Lord? Or maybe it's because we're afraid of something. Or maybe it's because we're selfish. Or maybe we're holding on to it because that's what we've been taught and we've never considered any other opinions. And ultimately, is what we're doing lining up with what Jesus taught and lived in his life? Do we see this example in his life of following in the direction that we want to go? And are we treating our brothers and sisters with love like Jesus did? Are we treating them with compassion, with grace, with humility, with a listening ear? with sacrifice, whatever we believe and whatever we do, we do so to the Lord. Well, I think that this is a fitting end to our series on Romans because Paul's hope was a unified church living and preaching the good news of faith in Christ. And I want to leave you now with this benediction in Romans 15. May the God who gives you endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude and mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring bring praise to God. Another translation says, welcome one another, just as Christ welcomed you, in order to bring praise to God. Amen.